If you've ever thought of quilting your own projects but just don't know where to start, I have the perfect first steps for you. I've put together a PDF guide. I call it Three Steps Toward Freehand Freedom. These are the baby steps, but they can help you move past your overwhelm and show you that yes indeed, freehand quilting can be learned. So if you'd like to snag this PDF, there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me three steps. That's the number three, S-T-E-P-S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started. It was kind of like living on a cruise ship is what I tell people. There are pools and mini golf and tennis and arcade and you know all of these things available at our apartment complex. So I really didn't feel a need to leave. <laughs> um, I was going to homeschool our kids because it was only a year and there were six of them. And so we stayed in our apartment complex and we just played and had fun. And as I tell people who have been on cruises, it was like having a sea day every day. <laughs> Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once, the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. Today's guest is Courtney Kimball. And friends, Courtney had so many stories to tell that we've actually broken this into a two-part interview. So this is part one of two. I'm your host, Susan Smith, and I'm coming to you from my quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. This is where my long arm, Lucy, and I spend lots of hours doing freehand, usually edge-to-edge quilting. If you're not a quilter and those terms don't mean anything to you, it's basically doodling on the surface of the layers of a quilt with a 50-pound writing utensil, needle and thread attached at really high speed. And if you are a machine quilter, I invite you to tune in to the live and unscripted events that I host on my YouTube channel. It's also called Stitched by Susan. And those air on the first and third Friday of every month. They are streamed live with no editing, so I'm working on a project in real time, and throughout I just chat about the processes and decisions as I work. So they're interactive because they're live, meaning you can ask questions and get answers about a project while I'm in fact working on it. So once again, that's the first and third Friday of each month. And if you'd like advanced notification of what the project will be in an upcoming week, sign up for my newsletter, and I've put a link for that in the show notes. Today's Pins and Needles is brought to you by The Will and Dave Show. Hi, I'm the Will half of The Will and Dave Show, a short little podcast that myself and the eponymous Dave like to record talking about the things that really matter to us, whether that's social, political, or pop culture. Usually we don't see eye to eye, but more often than not, we can find some common ground in there somewhere. And now, back to pins and needles with a quick tip for all you sharp quilters out there. My tip for you today arises from a quilt that I was recently working on. I was attaching the binding to a huge, larger than king-sized quilt. And as you might imagine, that is very heavy. And I've talked before about the fact that I sew at a desk and I create what I call a faux table extension by just pulling out the drawers so that I've got extra surface to rest my quilt on. But in this case, even that was not enough. So I felt it was really worthwhile to take the time to extend my working surface even larger so that I'm not constantly fighting against the bulk and the weight of that quilt pulling against my sewing machine. That can result in broken needles or uneven stitches or 
any crazy thing can happen. So I just took a couple of minutes to actually get out a folding table and set it up at approximately the height of my desk and that gave me an extra surface to rest that quilt upon. If you don't have a folding table, maybe your ironing board, that's always adjustable in height. So you could also rest that beside your sewing surface just as an extra area to rest that whole bulky quilt on. It really helps when you're working with something so large. You all know by now that I love my coffee. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, it can be done as simply as going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by Susan. There, for the price of one delicious coffee, you're able to make a one-time contribution. Thank you so very much for your support. And maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview. My guest today is Courtney Kimball, and she learned sewing and quilting from time in her childhood spent with her grandmother. But the stories in today's conversation center around a remarkable and much more recent project. In 2017, Courtney and her husband and their family moved to Honduras to develop an area of their existing business. But over time living there, she gradually became acquainted with some individuals and then with the desperate needs that were in the slum right next to their apartment complex, and in particular to the plight of the women and young girls that were there. So I think you'll be really fascinated by Courtney's firsthand glimpses into their dwellings and their struggles. Courtney's sister has joined her in the business, and now they have set out to change the life trajectory of these women and girls by making it possible for them to earn a living. So this story is ongoing, and I hope to check back with Courtney over time. But for today, let's meet Courtney and hear some of her stories. Hello, Courtney, and welcome to my studio. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this chance to talk with you. I've been, of course, scoping out your website. It's called One Common Thread, and that is what you're doing today. But I wondered if we can maybe start a little bit earlier. I always love to know how people first came by their interest in sewing or quilting. You know, was it a family affair or something you fell into? How did that start for you? Oh, definitely a family affair. Um, Well, as far as my grandmother goes, I think... Um, I was raised the day before uh, ADHD or ADD was ever diagnosed. (laughs) And being one of seven children, my mom needed a break from me sometimes. And Here, Grandma, have a child. I I know. So she would take me down to my grandma's house in Southern California. And she and I just sewed. And we just, it was just so much fun. And I think it was so great for me because I was one of seven kids. And it was that one-on-one time. and it just made me really love my grandmother and love sewing so much. And we would sew all my back to school clothes and just all a variety of things. And it was just so fun for me. So I really enjoyed it. And I think that was actually the best medicine for my hyperactivity at those days. <laughs> awesome. And I'm curious, are you a grandma yet? I am not, but my son just announced that he and his wife are pregnant. So I guess I am a grandma. She's just, the baby's just not here yet. That's so exciting. I am. We have two little people. And I, you know, hearing your story of your grandma, that's the kind of Nana that I want to be, right? Because when you're grandma, you don't have the responsibility, right, of getting the toenails clipped and the baths done and et cetera, et cetera. You get to spend that one-on-one time. And I think that's the most special thing about it. So it's awesome that your grandma did that. 
that's what I aspire to be. Yes, I think that's so important for the grandchildren and and just having that one-on-one time and that awesome um, opportunity to create something. I think that's what it's about. It's creating something and it creates memories. Yes. And whatever, whatever it is, I mean, it can be absolutely creative Mm -hmm. or it can be the joy of, I don't know, golfing or swimming, or it could be absolutely anything, right? But it's that um, dedicated time with the person who means so much to you. And I I just don't think that can be overvalued. So before we dive into what you're doing these days, maybe give me a snapshot of like what your family life looks like and how, how you came to be in the place where you are today. Because you are an American citizen. Obviously, you grew up in California. What, what pivots did your life take to get you where you are today? Um, well, I was raised in California. I went to college in, um, in Utah. And um, my husband was a Texan, and I met him up there. He was going to a college near mine. And we were married in 29 years ago in December. So we're about to celebrate our 29th wedding anniversary. And we, uh, soon we, we both quit college and decided to start our own business, which was kind of crazy. We moved to Texas, and my husband started... Um, a manufacturing facility in San Antonio and that's where we've raised our kids and he's one of six kids I'm one of seven kids we both started off saying we want three only that's what we could handle that's what we could manage and we ended up with nine so yeah God sometimes <laughs> has different ideas doesn't he <laughs> we we both thought you know just we didn't want to have too many because we wanted to be able to have that one-on-one time and then we just enjoyed each one of them and we just kept having kids and we just were so glad we didn't stop because our last two are probably our favorites. But we say that because, you know, they're the ones at home still. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, um, yeah. And then in 2017, so we'd lived in San Antonio our whole married life. 2017, my husband came to me and said that he would like to expand his business um, and he had a partner in Honduras. And so we decided to, um, you know, he just said, it's just going to be one year and we'll just take the kids with us. We had six of our nine at home still, and we'll just have an adventure. It'll be one year. We can do anything for a year, right? Right. And so I didn't think much of it because, you know, he's kind of said some things like that before, but all of a sudden this started becoming more and more serious and so serious in fact that one day I was like, I should really... Um, Google the city, San Pedro Sula, and see where he wants us to move. And I did, and I don't ever recommend doing that because it is frightening, the images and the articles that come up on San Pedro Sula, Honduras. I I think I'd been growing up in ignorance is bliss mentality of not realizing how incredibly dangerous Honduras is. And so... um, I Googled it, and before I knew it, it was time to move, and I was scared to death. And I just kind of thought, my responsibility, I'm a mother first and foremost, and so I need to protect my children. And we moved into a very safe compound apartment with guards all around, and it was kind of like living on a cruise ship is what I tell people. There were pools and mini golf and tennis and arcade and you know all of these things available at our apartment complex 
So I really didn't feel a need to leave. <laughs> um, I was going to homeschool our kids because it was only a year and there were six of them. And so we stayed in our apartment complex and we just played and had fun. And as I tell people who have been on cruises, it was like having a sea day every day. <laughs> right. So we did that for a year. And then my husband came and said, I just can't leave yet. I'm going to need more time. And in fact, I really won't feel comfortable unless we have about two more years. And that really made my stomach fall. We had enjoyed our time, but, you know, we were kind of feeling captive. And A year is a long time on a cruise ship. <sighs> yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> and so I... Um, I'm very faith-based, so we started praying about it and started discussing it with our kids. And, and first and foremost, my kids just said, well, we've got to go to school. If we're staying here, homeschool's not for us. We're social. We did it for a year, but we've got to get into school. And um, which made me nervous because then they're out of my watchful eye. <laughs> Being a hen, I am. And um, But we were grateful we got them into a really great international school there in San Pedro Sula. And all six of them were going to school, and that left me at home during the day. And I really started having this impression that, one, I needed to learn the language. I mean, I was learning it, but not learning it. <laughs> um, I needed to learn the language. I needed to let down my guard because I wanted to love the people. And I could love the people easily in my apartment complex that I got to know. It's not very threatening, is it? No, it's not. And they were the most like me. You know, they could speak English and Spanish and they had kids. They were traveling to the States, you know, obviously the wealthier of of the country. Um, but they were all Honduran. And but I really felt like I wanted to do something um, right outside our apartment complex. There's a slum right there. And I mean, I could throw a, a tennis ball and hit the slums from our apartments. And so we could actually, we lived on the 25th floor, so we could actually sit up there and just kind of watch the people down below and how they lived and what they were doing. And I just really felt this need that I wanted to do something to help. And so it started off simply, I knew um, by that time I had met one woman at church who lived in the slums. And I was kind of assigned to be like, um, her minister to like help her in any way that I could. And I thought, well, there's no way I can help her. First, I don't really speak Spanish. <laughs> Second of all, I can't go into the slums. Everybody, even local Hondurans don't go into the slums if they don't live there because it's that dangerous. And, and third of all, you know, it's very hot and dirty and hot and dirty. <laughs> and so there's a lot of walls that I had put up of reasons why I couldn't do it. But as I got to know this woman, her name is Jocelyn. Um, she had six kids and I had six kids with me in Honduras. And um, I just started realizing the similarities we had. So I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna take my driver, who's also our bodyguard, because down there, everybody um, that has, you know, that's in a middle to upper class has a bodyguard. Um, driver, because driving there is super dangerous as it is. There's no real laws. <laughs> if you're, if the freeway gets packed up on going northbound, then everybody just starts driving north on southbound. Oh my goodness! And, yeah, it just bedlam. It's the wild west. <laughs> 
So you have to have somebody that's knowledgeable and knows how to drive those roads. So I took, I asked him, his name's Gerardo, and I said, let's, let's go into the Bordeaux and let's go visit my friend Jocelyn. And he was just like, no, you can't do that. You know, and he's giving me all the reasons. I said, I just want to drop off some fresh fruits and vegetables for her. So can you, can you even drive in or do you have to go on foot? You can drive in. It, you know, it's, it's better to drive in, um, security wise. I mean, I felt safer, but at the same time, um, in Honduras, everybody blacks out their windows. Um, because you don't, whenever you're on the street, you don't want people to be able to see who's in your vehicle. Oh, so in the vehicle blacks out their windows. Yes. All the vehicles are blacked out the windows. So they're super dark shading and even the, even the windshield, you know, so you, so people can't see who's in your vehicle. But we were told if you're going to drive into the Bordeaux, you need to drive in with your windows down because the gang members need to be able to see who's in there. And that also frightened me. That's scary. Yes. <laughs> it was very scary. So we, we rolled our windows down and it's just, a, it's usually, it's more like a, a big walking path, but one vehicle at a time can fit down. So if you encounter another vehicle, then there's a lot of strategic moves to kind of that was my question you know, about, can you drive? Because obviously there's not, you know, paved streets. Yeah, no, it's not. It's just a very gravelly, bumpy road. Um, you know, even with their gray water sanitation coming out from their house, you know, into the road. And it's just dirty and not very hygienic. And so we drove down there and gratefully she didn't live very far into the Bordeaux. She was probably about 10 houses in. And we parked right in front of her house. And I just told her, you know, in my terrible Spanish, I'm just, you know, I'm from church. I want to visit you. I want to get to know you so I can know how to, I can help you. And, you know, I'm at that point, I was the only gringa that she really knew. <laughs> and I just said, just, just realize that I'm just a nosy gringa and I want to see what your house looks like. Because in all honesty, people don't really live in their houses because their house is just a sleeping area. They do their cooking outside. They do their socializing, their living. They pull chair, you know, plastic chairs out or, you know, logs or rocks or anything that's in front of their house. They sit on and talk. And I said, can I see where you sleep? And she said, yes, of course, I'll show you. And I knew she was embarrassed, but at the same time, I just thought I have to see this firsthand because all I can see is the the wood exterior and the corrugated tin roofs, you know, and, and that's like, that's if they were lucky enough to have wood exterior. Most of them just had like landscaping tarp. And so, um, I went into her home and it was split with sheets into three different sections. Um, one was kind of like an entry section where they kept their dishes and, and kind of like a, a kitchen, but not with anything. <laughs> um, like a sink or anything like that. Um, the next area was the um, children's room. And she, I knew she had six kids and there was just one set of bunk beds in that room. So, and then the next, I, and I don't want to say rooms, I'm just, the next section was her area with her husband and they had one double bed in there. And then just tons and tons of black trash bags. And the black trash bags is what they kept their things in, whether it was their clothes or anything special to them, books or pictures or anything that they had. 
And so my first thing was, well, you have six kids. Where's everybody sleeping? How is this bunk bed situation working? Because two of them were grown teenage boys. And she, you know, pointed to the ground where there was some dirty blankets and said, some of my kids sleep down there. Most of my kids sleep um, in twos in the beds. And then, you know, the baby will sleep with us. So I noticed right away that there was a sleeping situation that I could fix by just taking a picture of it and putting it on Facebook and telling my friends, two children sleep on these dirty blankets. Your dog sleeps in a better bed. How can we fix this? And instantly my friends were like, oh, go buy her a bed. Here, I want to be a part of that. I'm, I'm Venmoing you $100 and somebody else sent $100. And by the end of the day, I had $7,000 <laughs> from wonderful people in the States who were just like, let's rectify this situation. So from Jocelyn, you know, improving her living condition, then I kind of just started, well, Jocelyn had a sister. So I started visiting her sister and, and, you know, I needed to spend that money because it wasn't mine. <laughs> it was all these people in the States who wanted to help them. And so I was just looking for, okay, let's fix this and let's get you in a bed and let's get you a little plastic dresser to put your things in. So you're not living out of trash bags. Um, another was my, one lady had a son who has terrible asthma. Well, she has a full fire going on in her house where she's cooking her food with no real chimney. And so the smoke is just building up. Everything's sooty. And this little boy is just hacking up the whole time I'm visiting her. And I'm trying to, do you realize why he has, you know, that this is irritating his asthma? And, you know, she doesn't realize because she has a sixth grade education. That's where most of the women stop going to schools because the state stops paying for them in sixth grade. And so these women, and they're lucky if they've gotten to sixth grade. A lot of them have stopped working already because of the necessity of helping around the house with younger children or something. And so I did that and we spent that money and it felt really good and I felt nice, but I felt at the same time, not a lot of accomplishment. Like I'm a wife of an entrepreneur. I myself have been an entrepreneur my whole life you know, just with, I started pony rides when I was 16 because I lived on a ranch. And so I would take a pony that we had on our ranch into birthday parties and put it in the back of my dad's horse trailer and drive it in myself and do these pony parties for kids. So I'd always been thinking of ways to make money with the resources that I had. And, um, so I was more of a small time entrepreneur, <laughs> but, um, the, I, the next part of my story is that's where my mind kind of stopped. I started thinking, what can I do? What difference can I make besides just handing out things? And, um, you know, and, and just as the Lord does, he provides <laughs> your thoughts <laughs> and the opportunity. And yeah, and before I knew it, um, Jocelyn's niece, um, she's 13 years old. Her name's Scarlett she was going on a church bus trip and um, every, all of the youth in, in our church congregation, um, the, the bishop of our congregation had always just let everybody go for free. And 
this next time, he said, you know, we had too many people sign up and I ordered a big bus and not everybody showed up. So I want some accountability. So I'm going to have all of you youth pay $5 to go on the next trip. And which isn't a whole lot in U.S. money. And in an honesty, in our congregation, most of the kids could easily afford that because most of our congregation was middle to upper class. We only had just a very few that were in poverty. Um, but Scarlett was one of them, and she said, there is no way I can ask my parents for $5. My dad makes $30 a week, you know, which was basically, you know, she's telling me in Olympiadas, and I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, wait, did you just say that that's equivalent of thirty dollars. <laughs> um, I can't even take my family out to eat for less than thirty dollars. You know, I mean, every time I move my crowd, I know it's going to be eighty to one hundred dollars. Just even if we're at Wendy's, it's just ridiculous. But there are a lot of us. So, um, I started thinking about it, and I didn't. I, you know, and she came to me. How can I make five dollars? Can you help me? And I was trying to think of a way. And the interesting thing was I was at that time making a quilt for my oldest daughter. She was about to get married. And I didn't take my sewing machine down to Honduras because I didn't want to get damaged in the travel. And I was making an English paper piece hexagon quilt. Which means that you're hand stitching, right? Because you don't have your I'm, machine with you. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm doing this ginormous king size quilt and I'm hand stitching it all and I'm and I had just learned how to do it about six months before I moved down there that's what's funny a friend of mine had showed me and I was thinking oh that is a lot of work I will never make one of those <laughs> that is just too much hand work but since I didn't have my machine I started making it since we were in Honduras and and it was fun it was fulfilling but the if you've ever made an EPP hexagon quilt you know the the most not only small pieces of one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the most non-fun part is just making the hexagons, you know, mm -hmm. and, and just, just getting prepping, them ready. The prep work. Put, exactly. All of the prep work. And I thought, oh, light went off my head. Scarlett, I'll teach you how to make these little hexagons and you can help me get a jump start on this quilt that I'm making. And it was super easy, um, picked her up in our van. We actually drove down the street, so we were away from the Bordeaux. And I just gave her a lesson in my car <laughs> and because that's how easy it is, you know, just to base these hexagons together. And um, so we did that. And within, uh, so she did that all the, the afternoon and then the next day, the next evening, she called me and she said, I have 500 done. Yes. And I was just like, oh, that's amazing. And I honestly didn't know what to pay her. I was just like, oh, well, this is way more than $5 work for me. <laughs> and um, and so I just said, okay, well, I'll give you this much. And I, I gave her more um, than $5. <laughs> and... I, I guess I should have known that that would all of a sudden make a lot of light bulbs go off in other people's heads. But the minute she walked home with that money, her mom and her cousins and her aunts, they all started calling me. <laughs> and they all said, we are so appreciative for the things that you've gotten us from your friends on Facebook. But the thing that we could really use is work. We could 
use a way to make money. And if this is something that we could do, we would love to do this for you. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's going to be 2000 hexagons to make this one quilt. I, if all of you do, it will be done in, you know, a matter of hours. <laughs> um, what can I do? And so I called, I said, let me think about it. And so I called my sister in the States. She's, um, lives in Utah. And I just said, you know, is there a market for this? Is there something we can do? I looked online and I had seen a couple of people on Etsy were selling pre-basted hexagons, but not very many. And she said, you know what? I don't know. And my sister's not a sewer. That's what's funny. She didn't have that same experience with grandma. <laughs> and she said, I don't really know anything about this, but I have friends and I that sew and let me see. Let, let's talk about this. And she said, just let's, um, between the two of us, we decided, you know, we put money into a little account and we said, let's just start off with our little seed money and get them started. And let's, and then we'll just tell them if, if the sells will continue. And if it doesn't sell, then it was really great. But you know, we don't need a million hexagons for ourselves. <laughs> and so, um, so that's basically how it kind of accidentally started. These ladies started making these hexagons. It started off with, with 10 ladies. They were my friends. It was Jocelyn and her sister, um, who was, uh, Scarlett's mother. And then they have, um, about three of their other sisters and then a couple of their of their daughters. And so there was 10 women that I knew and I thought, okay, with you 10, I can, my sister and I can pay the overhead on this and we can try to start something. And so we did, we started um, just sewing hexagons and putting kits together. And I started a little website and in all honesty, I had to just sit in my room for two days and tell my kids, stay out. I have to learn how to build a website. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about that. Yes. <laughs> I'm reading every tutorial there is. And anyhow, we figured it out and we got some kind of just basic website going and started trying to sell on there. And instantly, my sister's friends who wanted to be so supportive, a lot of them were like, well, we don't sew, but I want to support you guys, but we don't sew. So it's not going to do me a lot of good to Not, not terribly sustainable. Thoughtful, but not terribly sustainable, right? Exactly. So um, they said, but we'd love to buy a quilt. You know, could they put, make, you know, take those hexagons and put, make a quilt. And, and so um, I, I went, went back, back to, to the, the drawing, drawing board. board and, and, and Did that involve another had... lesson in the back of the car? Yes. <laughs> So we started getting these ladies together and just, um, I would have them come to my apartment <laughs> a lot of times and we would just have like a whole session on here it is, is a design. It's kind of like paint by numbers. You use this color to represent this, you know, and, and, um, let's see how this works. And so we just started off with two designs. It was just one basic scrap quilt mix of all different colors and then one grandma's garden um, with the flowers and so we started off with those two and you know there's a lot of learning curves um, because these women are so wonderful and so sweet um, there's some things that they just don't understand because you know Christmas fabric can't be put with fourth of July fabric and so you know we're learning a lot as we're going and um, 
and even though you can get one more hexagon out of this piece of fabric you can't use the label you know they would use the, the part of the label on the side of the fabric like what is that called the selvage you know what I'm talking? yes mm -hmm. the little <laughs> woven edge right yes exactly they would use that and put it into the hexagon and so then we'd have like the, the colored piece of fabric then with like a white line down the side of it and so, you know, there was a lot of little learning curves that we were learning as we went. And so we just started selling those online. And um, soon COVID, and we, and we did all this, got all prepared, so excited because we had, um, my sister and I both majored in communications at college and, and I was in public relations. So I started sending out press releases and emails to different um, news agencies trying to get somebody to talk about us. So that, drive people to the website. And um, our first story aired on um, KSL in Utah, because that's where my sister was at. Um, and they interviewed her up there. And it aired on March 5th, 2020. So, so, so did that work for you or against you? I mean, it would take, the, take, take you out of the limelight, I guess, but at least your website is still very functional. It is, but at the same time, um, I think we were just lost because all of a sudden... So the story got of, lost. The story got lost. And it was kind of a terrible time to start. <laughs> um, and it was hard to get any kind of attention after that because, of course, all... And on top of that, we got a letter from an email from the embassy in Honduras that said, you know, to all... Um, expats, if you are here and you have an opportunity to go back to the States, we recommend you go back to the States Beca because they have um, a hundred ventilators in the whole country of Honduras. And if you get sick, you'll be waiting in line just like everybody else. And so if you get sick, it's better to get sick in the States where there's much more resources for you. And so that went back to me being a mom of six children that we have with us. And I, I told my husband, I think we probably need to go back to the States because of this worldwide pandemic. And, and so we moved back home and in the end of March. And basically when I said goodbye to my ladies, you know, we're doing a lot of air hugs and standing six feet apart and I'm telling them that I'll miss them. And, but one of them just said, it's okay. Thank you for trying to help us, but we we know that this is probably over. Um, you know, mo most of the time when people go home, we get forgotten, <laughs> and that really stuck that tugs with my, on the heartstrings. It did because you know you you do get home and you get back into your routine, and um. And honestly, I think I had a lot of guilt when I first got back of thinking, even getting a manicure for $30, I knew what $30 could do for a child in Honduras. I knew that that, that $30 would keep a baby drinking formula for a whole month. And so that's how I'm, I'm basing my life. And it was really hard at first because I was just like, Oh, just my mind was always still going back there and I still had a lot of their product even though I couldn't get to them I had already shipped a lot of it back to the States so I just thought well I'm gonna try to sell what I have here and and one thing that was so smart and I think it um, I was truly inspired because at first 
I would have the ladies come to my apartment and I would pay them in cash. And then they would take their money home. And that became a little bit hard, um, having them always come to my apartment. So then my next thought was, well, I'll have to take the money to them. And my husband said, you are not taking, you're not going to be known as the lady who's taking a wallet full of cash into the slums, you know. And so he said, that is just not safe and it's not sustainable. You need to help these ladies get bank accounts. And so um, before COVID hit, about five months before, I told all my ladies, I'm not going to give you cash anymore. You need to have a bank account. So I need you to go to this bank, you know, the same bank I bank with, so I can make just in-bank transfers with, with no fees. And, um, and one lady said, well, you have to have an identification card to get a bank account. And I said, okay. She says, I don't have an identification card. I don't have anything that says that I exist. And I was just dumbfounded. I'm like, you don't have anything? You know, and she's like, well, you know, there's this birth certificate that my mom gave me. Um, and, th and not even all of them had that. Um, but if I wanted to go get an identification card, I have to go downtown and I have to stand in a line and I have to wait hours on end to have them recognize me as a person and give me an identification card. And I just said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> we're going to get your identification card. So, you know, we're taking ladies downtown, they're standing in lines together and we're getting them through and getting their identification cards and then taking them to the bank. Um, still, even that's a hurdle because you have to have 12, you know, the equivalent of $12 to open a bank account. It's 300 limpiras. And um, so I would give them each $12 just to open their bank account. And I would tell them, okay, this is my $12. Because the minute they go under it, the bank closes out their account. I said, so you can never spend my $12. <laughs> that, that stays in there. But everything I give you on top of that, that's your money. You can spend it any way you want. I, I have no say on that. But just don't go below 300 limpiras in your account. And so um, we got them all bank accounts. And so that was great because by the time I got home from, you know, back to the States, I was able to still make bank transfers and transfer money over to them. And um, I put a friend of mine in charge down there. She's, she was a, um, just a good friend that I had made. And she had been a doctor, but she had stopped practicing because she was trying to raise her children. So she was just a really great Honduran woman. And her name is Ada. And um, I kind of put Ada in charge of the management of the women. So she would accept their work and you know to kind of do quality control and then um at the at the time i was having her just go buy fabric in honduras and give them more work and who knew when i was going to be able to get back and, get, and pick up what they had made we i figure we'll figure that out when we can figure that out <laughs> but let's just keep them working these 10. and so we did that and then crazy enough in november 2020 honduras was hit by two back-to-back -back hurricanes Dear friends, thank you so much for tuning into the show. I hope that you've been moved and touched by today's conversation as much as I have. And remember that this was part one of a two-part interview. So come back for next week's episode to hear the conclusion of this story. One of the ways that you can help would be to share this podcast with your friends and also to follow One Common Thread on their social media pages and to like and comment and in other ways interact 
all these things really help them to grow their visibility, which in turn helps them to help more of these women and girls in the Honduras. So thank you for doing that. I know that the ladies at One Common Thread appreciate your efforts. So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted.